Hello, and welcome to a new edition of the Research for Practice podcast. Our guest today is Emeritus Professor Gillian Schofield, OBE. Gillian has shown how valuable research can be for practice throughout her career. Alongside her colleague, Dr. Mary Beek, their secure-based model has been embraced and implemented throughout the world. We were lucky enough to spend some time with Gillian, reflecting on her incredible career. We hope you enjoy. Hello, Jill. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. So how is uh, Emeritus Life treating you? It's really good, actually. It's actually, uh, I'm as busy as ever, but um, focusing on writing up projects that are still, you know, being finished off and supervising PhD student finishing off and so forth. So it's, uh, no, it's been really good. It's been fine and suitable for a, a pandemic world, really. So doesn't sound much like retirement there, Gillian. <laughs> Sounds like you're still fairly busy. I think anybody who knows me would know. I, I have a, I'm not sure that I quite define work in the way that other people define work. Because actually, I really enjoy most of what I do. So we've, we've just been talking about the end, but how did you get into academia in the first instance? Well, I started out getting into social work. Like many people, I was torn between teaching and social work. Um, and that was still with me when I went to university. So I did English and sociology to sort of keep my options open. And um, and, and that tension continued. Then I went to um, UCLA and uh, to Los Angeles to do a master's in black political writing and volunteered in a school uh, for yeah. troubled children, an inpatient psychiatric uh, unit, actually, a school inpatient psychiatric unit. And I thought, oh, actually, I can teach and work with troubled children, and that, that will resolve my issue around <laughs> social work. So I actually went the teaching route initially, so I went to work in a comprehensive school, then I went to work in a, a secure unit and decided that actually I was more interested in young people and their mental health and their family backgrounds, and so uh, retrained as a social worker. And because I think it started with an interest in children's mental health, so after I qualified, I went to work in a children's mental health unit called Child Guidance in those days. So that was my route into, into social work. And then following that, I had a, a, a small career break with the kids and um, and then went back into social work in a very different role, really, working as a guardian ad litem. So working very much in, in the courts in child protection work, but still with a focus on assessment of children's mental health and development and risks and so forth. And it was from that period that um, June Thoburn, who was uh, training guardians ad litem, so my colleague Emeritus Professor June Thoburn, very kindly plucked me from that role and said, would I like to do a few hours a week teaching at UEA? So there's a nice little route from wanting to teach and do social work to ending up teaching social work. So it all, all comes Absolutely. together quite nicely. Yes, that, has, that has struck me quite a few times. <laughs> I did them both in the end, yes. Well, for the last 30 years. So you managed to keep that balance throughout your career, the, the teaching and the research? Yes, I think that's been um, a major advantage of being in a school of social work like UEA. 
because from the beginning, so when I, I was literally, I think I was employed to do maybe a day a week or a day and a bit a week on the uh, CPD programme at the time and teach child development and child observation. Um, but then um, head of school said, well, would you be, uh, which, which area of research are you going to do then while you're here? And I'm thinking, well, I'm hardly here at all, but anyway, I'm, I'm up, uh, up to this. This is all, all very exciting. And I was given the choice actually of, we, they had uh, a small amount of funding for three possible projects. And one was um, contact with prisoners. Um, so family contact with, in prisons, contact centers. Another was uh, secure, uh, children secure accommodation. And the third was uh, school age mothers in Ipswich. And they were all incredibly tempting, but actually um, the mother's project uh, won out partly because it was very interesting. I was very interested in family relationships and partly because my kids were young and it meant I could just operate in Ipswich rather than travel around the country, which <laughs> was pretty impossible. So I think those people who are trying to manage research alongside family life will recognise that mm. dilemma. But it actually turned out to be an ideal choice for me too, because it was so fascinating to talk to a range of girls from those who'd recently had their babies. At, at, so these were girls who'd had, so school so school age, not teenage, if you like, that they had become pregnant, 16 or under. Um, so these were the youngest group of uh, mothers. And, and, and the book that came out of that study, which was called The Youngest Mothers, sort of highlights highlights that. But because this school was so great, the one in Ipswich that I was interviewing and, and meeting these um, these young women, it was possible to also talk to women in their early 20s. Um, and that was the first, uh, I was new to research anyway, but it, it uh, taught me some important lessons about the values of talking to people in their 20s about their childhoods and teenage years, because... Mm. If I'd only spoken to 15 and 16 year olds and heard their aspirations of, you know, well, I'm still going to um, get an education and, and get a mortgage and it's not going to stop me at all. Um, I might have had some doubts. But when you actually talk to 25 year olds who've done all those things, 25 year old with a 10 year old daughter, then you um, become immediately kind of aware of all the different processes of support and resilience that, that these young women were showing. And this was at a time, and it probably still is the case, that um, so much of the literature was so negative. Oh, know. yes, I remember. And it was a really powerful bit of research that I remember reading it and, and thinking, because it was, well, it was the early 90s, wasn't it? And it was. The beginning of that whole process of well it was vilification of, of teenage mums really by the new labor and tony blair and and it was your study was actually bringing their voices out and saying well this isn't really helping <laughs> you know they've got enough hurdles as it is and actually hearing them and some of the positive sides of it as well from their perspective i thought was really powerful but also going back to a, a kind of traditional family support form really so actually what these young, successful young women were mainly able to do was to be uh, to, to stay with their own families and to bring them up these these babies in the context of a of a supportive extended family, you know, a long term tradition in uh, most cultures, but but a fading one in ours seemingly and a stigmatized one. So a sort of sense in which really teenagers to be mothers need to be you know independent but actually the, the, those who really struggled were the ones who were given flats rather too early mm. you know, actually the ones who were able and supported to stay at home with their family if you know family relationships allowed that that was a much more natural and appropriate way forward and of course, that gave me messages that I've used subsequently in relation to the whole emphasis on independence for care leavers. 
you mm. know, so I think I, I learned some important lessons about the kind of um, unfortunate culture that we seem to have developed about independence being the goal of um, adolescence as opposed yeah. to interdependence, building relationships, building networks. So practice has obviously been at the heart of your research right from the start about how you can help practitioners. So what would you say is your most impactful piece of work that you've done? Well, in terms of impact, I think probably I'd want to talk about two main areas which are connected. The first is really the whole story of long-term foster care. UEA already had a tradition of researching permanence through June Thoban, and I came into that, but I'd also, when I was working in the courts as a guardian, I'd been involved in quite a few cases where there'd been a, a choice to be made or a decision around adoption or long-term foster care in particular. Um, and even then, actually, adoption was very much a, a sort of the gold standard sort of option for, for permanence and foster care was already starting to be seen as, as a sort of a lesser option. So with the, the long term foster care work. So what I think the research has enabled me to do is to demonstrate, again, some of these surprising outcomes. And it's not unlike school age mothers in a way, you know, children in care a stigmatised group, people make a lot of assumptions about their experiences, there's a lot of policy negativity about them. So I think in terms of impact, it's been very important over the years to keep flying the flag really for foster care and for long-term foster care in particular, but at the same time acknowledging the, obviously the complexities and challenges of it. Um, so I did my PhD talking to adults age 18 to 30, who um, had grown up in, in foster care. And in those days, we seemed to do a lot of interviews. So I did 40 interviews and that both gave me some wonderful stories of extraordinary um, trajectories that children had gained so much really from the relationships, from family membership, even if this was their last placement, they're 16, and then they went on into adulthood and that family is still their family. So I gained some fabulous stories, but also amongst the stories, and again, as a researcher in, of children in care, you have to accept you're going to get both. I had a stories of multiple abuse from birth families, foster families, adoptive families, residential care stuff. When I did that research, I, I, I simply asked for their name and they're sort of, uh, they fitted the criteria. So when you switch, the, when you switch your recording tape on, you just don't know what you're going to get. So you could get this amazing story where they went almost straight away into a wonderful foster home and it's been tremendous ever since, or a nightmare of a, of, of a story in which children were uh, multiply abused and, uh, and so on. And, and I've had it to, in adult life, manage those experiences. And of course, many stories included both. So I've never shied away from talking about the difficulties, the challenges, you know, the necessity for reviews of children in care in some form, however intrusive that might seem. So in terms of impact, and, and I suppose, although I think I've kind of helped along the way through numerous inquiries to keep reminding people of the significance of long-term foster care, one of the um, culminations of that in some ways was to be invited to join an expert working group to develop regulations and guidance on long-term foster care, which came out in 2015. That was a, a landmark event. So long-term foster care has been mentioned for the last 
30 years in different documents as a legitimate permanence option. But this was the first time that the DfE had really, even though activities were so well resourced in relation to developing adoption, they were willing to really put, you know, go a, a long way to trying to establish long-term foster care by defining it, giving it regulations and guidance and so forth. So that hasn't meant that all the problems have gone away. I'm researching the implementation of the regulations and guidance now. But it so that's that's been a a very interesting um, and important element in terms of impact. So has there been along the way, has there been any sort of changes to the messages you might want to say or, or have, have you found that the messages are quite consistent that you want to get across in terms of long term foster care? I think I've had to become or, or think very long and hard about how permanence is thought about and defined. Yeah. And I'm just so aware, particularly this current research where we've been talking to uh, managers, service managers about and also doing the national survey. But we've been trying to work out how do they present this idea to children and to foster carers? The word permanence is such a difficult word, you know, guaranteeing you're going to stay together forever as it appears to do is, you know, is, as many people have said, not not helpful. I don't think I've changed in my belief that the idea of making a plan, agreeing a match, having a clear sense that this is what you feel is the best option for this child and that you're going to work really hard to make it, you know, to support the placement and to make it work. Um, but I just think there are a lot of subtleties in how children understand their future at different ages. I mean, it's true for other permanence options, obviously true to the growing understanding of the meaning of adoption, too, for example. But nevertheless, for foster care, I think, has its own real dilemmas of being in the system, but wanting to have a normal family life. Um, mm. So that's the kind of thing I'm writing about at the moment. How do you manage that? So I, I say I think the core message of we have to be hopeful and I suppose the reason for that is <laughs> that we have to be hopeful because we have no choice. That actually only a small proportion again of children will be adopted or reunified. So there mm -hmm. will be this cohort of children who are growing up in care. So it's not that anybody, including me, is an advocate for long-term foster care at all. It's that you have to make this arrangement work. And I think the UK has been much better doing this than many other countries who kind of pretend that this doesn't happen. So we're very explicit that we want this to work and we, this can be a long term family for children. But, you know, what you say to a 13, 14, 15 year old who also has strong ties to their birth family, that's where the, you know, the, the complicated practice and the subtlety of practice comes in. And that's what we keep trying to, to capture in our articles and books. Although it's difficult to quantify it yet, I think there has been a positive impact overall of the regulations and guidance that they need to take long-term foster care more seriously. I think what's interesting is that back in 97 and probably back in the 80s, there were already local authorities who were taking it very seriously indeed. So it didn't in a sense, need regulations and guidance to come up with models of good practice. There was lots of good practice out there, but there was also lots of agencies who were not. 
So I think if you're thinking about the function of policymakers in an area like this, actually it's to try to bring everybody up to the standard of good practice of, of the best local authorities. One of the um, aspects of the regulations and guidance was that local authorities were to code foster placements that were agreed long-term foster placements and report on those numbers to the DfE. So in other words, they had to know which of their children were in long-term foster care. So that was a very dramatic request, really, ask requirement from the DfE. So until 2015, they hadn't really been collecting that in any no, asserted way. No, there was no. And one of the things to prompt the research was that the DfE hadn't been able to publish the numbers that had been submitted to them because they seemed so erratic and there was doubt as to how different local authorities were interpreting what was meant by the guidance and what was meant right. by long-term mm. foster care. So it's literally only now that we've now got the data which the DfE have already said is faulty, <laughs> but at least we have got the quantitative data now. So we know there are wide-ranging uh, use of this, these codes and so on. So in terms of impact, I think the, 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 the regulations and guidance was important, but we're still waiting to confirm really through this project that we're doing, which we'll report in the spring, whether we feel that certain aspects of it, in particular that method of gathering data, will, will be useful. It illustrates how research and practice and policy is a cycle. So now we are getting to the place through your research and policy to be able to get a better understanding of what's going on, which then again will inform the next generation of research into how we then build on that and improve on it. I think we always need to remember this research is never done. It's just evolving. We are getting better and wiser about these things as we go forward. And also, I think one of the um, one of the issues has been, you know, whether or not this, um, if you like, this failure to code these placements correctly is is a uh, a failure, or whether it actually reflects, which is what we've, we're finding by talking to people and doing the survey and so on. So if you have a robust procedure, which means that you're going to ask a teenager to sort of sign documents or go to a fostering panel to be approved as a long-term foster care placement, and they say, well, actually, that puts me at odds with my sense of still having strong ties with my birth family, so I don't want to go to your panel. Some local authorities, they've been quite comfortable with the idea of, well, we've done the assessment, we've done the matching, this, you know, this teenager is really happy to stay in his placement until he's 18, but he doesn't want to go through our procedure, but we'll still call him long-term foster care, we'll still defend and support that placement, and we'll still include him in our numbers to the DfE. Other local authorities are saying, well, we're so robust <laughs> that, that we must, we can only count those cases that have gone to panel. So yeah. there are some very real human issues around practice. Just counting numbers isn't going to capture, and that is the great thing about doing social work research in the way that we do this mixed method research, is that we are trying very hard not to jump to conclusions by looking only at one kind of data, but trying to put it all together and, and being tuned into social work practice at the time as well. Well, I think what you're talking about there in terms of providing a secure and permanent placement links very nicely to that other focus of your work, which has also been quite impactful. And that's the development of a secure base. Um, and that applies not just to fostering, but in general, how a child needs a secure base. Um, so, yeah, could you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yes, I mean, this came very directly from the, um, the Nuffield-funded original research in long-term foster care that began in 97. So um, when we followed up the children in sort of 2000, 2001, we were very interested in thinking about what it was that helped foster carers be successful in promoting security in children. And it was in a way, fairly straightforward to, to move then to think about, well, what theories might help us understand that? And obviously aspects of attachment theory already well established in child placement gave us a, a number of dimensions um, which were known to um, promote security uh, between mothers and infants in intact families. So that's the kind of the original research and the origin of these dimensions. What we were doing is we were looking at foster carers, looking after troubled children age anything from nine to 15. Um, and we were interested in seeing whether or not same principles applied. I mean, it seemed likely that they would, because mm -hmm. obviously concepts such as availability and trust, sensitivity and managing your feelings, these kind of issues are obviously relevant throughout children's development. Um, but nevertheless, it was really important that we were able to apply what was already established sort of theoretical underpinnings in developmental psychology to um, child placement. And so what we did with that was we then used it initially as a basis of research interviews with foster carers, then as a way of writing up our sense of the progress that children were making in relation to the kind of caregiving they were received. Um, and from that, we went on to um, be funded, actually. So I think over the years, there's been a, some good sources of funding for impact work that's based on research. So we were, Mary Beak and I were funded for two years, basically, to write a book and develop a training programme. So that, that gave us the space, really, to write the Attachment Handbook, which came out in 2006. So that um, went beyond our own fostering research into a way of describing uh, these dimensions that could be relevant. At that point, we were focusing on fostering and adoption, um, but certainly across all child placement. And then we produced a guide with BAF on permanence in foster care, where we used this model as well. So there was a constant, at that point, interaction between the long-term foster care research and what became the secure-based model. And they said, well, you can't put all this material about secure-based in the, an appendix. You'll need to put it on a website. And that's been incredibly important. I mean, the, the whole sort of spread of secure-based model wouldn't have developed in that way without that. But it was also nudged along the way very helpfully by a number of things. So the DfE uh, recommended the model in a care review of that period, which was 2007, Care Matters. So I think it's been really helpful that policy has recognised the value of the ways of, of bringing research into practice um, in a way that is then going to be useful to practitioners um, across the country. So have you taken that research into other professions like education to, to think about how you can use that? Yes, I mean, I think some of these things, some of these developments have been quite recent in, in relation to that, certainly. So there's been a movement for a while to um, have attachment aware 
nurse in schools and Mary and I had been asked by by schools in the past just to go and talk to them about the model mainly as a way of understanding why children come, who come from very troubled backgrounds are going to have difficulties managing their behavior and their emotions and their learning in a classroom setting um, so that's been around for a while but then we were funded um, again, this this is this in, the power of this impact money can't be you know overstated really. It's so important. So we were funded by the Alex uh, Timpson Trust basically to do what we've done for foster care and adoption, which is actually develop a training program that trainers could pick up and use. They didn't have to pay us to come at great expense, or, or you know it wasn't licensed. Um, so that was the basis of, of this piece of work that Mary did. But it's, uh, it, it, I think that's <clears throat> that's what we've wanted to do all along, really, is to make our materials as available as possible. The other very exciting thing about the development of the secure-based model is the way that it's been taken up internationally. Uh, that started really with with my being invited to help develop it in Norway, and that enabled me to see how. Um, a country, a, a system could adopt it. I think actually even before we'd, it had had the impact it had in, in the UK really, but also again a, a great privilege of being a researcher and practitioner was working with, so twice a year I was going to Norway, sitting down with social workers, hearing them tell me about a six-year-old in Bergen who was having this behaviour problem and they'd used the model and they'd done this and they'd found it very helpful and so on. So, and then that got expanded massively when Mary, in a gap between research funding, <laughs> actually <laughs> took a post with Care for Children, which is a Norwich-based charity that works in uh, China and Thailand and is currently developing a work in Vietnam and elsewhere. So that Secure Base then became part of a deinstitutionalization agenda. That's such a wide reach, and most um, researchers can only hope to have a little bit of that reach. I mean, is that your proudest moment, or are there other things that you're incredibly proud of in terms of your research? I'm very proud uh, with to have worked with Mary all these years. So Mary was the researcher in '97. Um, joined in the long, so she's also done all the long-term foster care as well. But I think I think it, it's difficult to choose in terms of the secure base. I'm very proud that that it's seen as useful in the UK. I'm thrilled to bits that you know Trigbasa is still a big thing in Norway, and they still have you know Trigbasa support groups for foster carers. And I am very pleased that. Um, other countries who are particularly using it for deinstitutionalization. So that's gone wider than Care for Children. So Care in Action are now working in Ukraine. Mary's been twice to Ukraine. Um, and it's also, there's been a the first fostering gui guide in, in, in India mentioned Secure Base. You know, I think that that international and UK reach has been really important. And the long-term foster care stuff as well, which which carries on because it will continue to be be needed. I suppose as an academic, I guess as an academic researcher, I've also had you know the great privilege. I was director of the psychosocial studies program for five years, and that was wonderful too. So to be working with a great team, we've always had fantastic teaching and research teams at, at, in the UEA School of Social Work. So that was wonderful to be developing and working with a new programme, which eventually went on to become what is now a massive school of psychology. So that's 
And I suppose then just, uh, I mean, being head of school of social work, I think mm. when you're when you're coming through the school and you look at the, the, the heads of school that, that have helped you along the way, there's a sense of, uh, first of all, I'm so glad they're doing that job because then I don't have to. <laughs> and then when it becomes your turn, um, because it's such a responsibility, it was such a privilege. So mm. I think that has to be, you know, in terms of contribution, it has that that felt really very special to be head of school of social work, I have to say. I mean, you can certainly how um, you were nominated and got your OBE. Can you share any any thoughts, any feelings around when you got told? <laughs> that was wonderful. <laughs> it was it was it was really wonderful. I mean, it was it's like everything this year. It's been a little strange. So, I got the news in early June. And normally, what happens is if you get the news, then two weeks later, it's in the newspapers. So you have to say whether you want to accept it, obviously. But this time they said you've got this wonderful news, but you mustn't even tell your family or anybody until the autumn, <laughs> because they were delaying the whole thing. Um, so I did actually tell my my husband, my son and my daughter, but they were under strict instructions not to tell anybody else. Um, and I think it's I think it's just a I think it's just wonderful recognition for for social work. It's obviously personally, it's very satisfying. But I think, you know, while we have an honours system for achievement, I think it's fantastic that social work academics that is recognised. You know, I got a great letter from the DfE uh, talking about my work in foster care, referencing secure base, you know, so it's kind of, it's nice to feel that, that, that not just the general work, but the detail of it gets through to different places. So yeah, so that, that's been a particularly satisfying moment this year. Yes. Oh, well, congratulations. congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> It's been wonderful to talk to you. But is there is there anything, if there was one thing from everything we've talked about today that you'd like people to take away from this interview, what would it be? Well, I think obviously the power of research to inform practice is absolutely key. But I also think we need to fight for the essential role of university schools of social work in, in both creating that research, but also leading on social work education and making the connection between the two. Research can be squeezed by the many independent research organisations now commissioned. The social work education can be squeezed by an emphasis on training in, in, in practice. But I think we know that university schools of social work have an absolutely crucial role to play um, in the profession and in its reputation and its evidence base. So um, I would hope that that would also have come across from, from this podcast. Thank you so much, Janine. It's been really lovely talking to you today. Um, and thank you for agreeing to do this. And all I can say is have a happy, restful retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I shall have a comfortable but busy retirement. That's It was wonderful to talk with Professor Schofield about her remarkable contributions to the field of social work, both in the UK and around the world. One of the things that Jill mentioned that I think is worth emphasising is this notion of interdependence as opposed to independence. For a while now, I fear, across the social work sector, we have neglected people's needs for support and belonging in the name of promoting independence. 
Now, whether that is the independence that masks the isolation that is faced by many of the older population, or independence from the system in the gold standard of adoption, the cynic in me might reflect on the financial savings of such policies, but arguably it has led to the neglect of the systems we have that can and do work. The reality is, we have to work with what we have, and that means acknowledging and supporting the amazing contribution of foster carers in providing a secure base for children. As Jill points out, the issue of how we best look after children who cannot safely remain with their families is one that will not go away. We are fortunate to live in a society that says there is a standard of care that children have a right to, and a society that is prepared to act to support those struggling families, and in the worst situations to home and care for those children most at risk. But as Jill says, we have to be brutally honest. There are times when it doesn't work, and the experience of those who have been let down and abused within our own systems are ones we need to listen to, and we need to work to make things better. To do that, we must look at where it does work, where we have successfully provided belonging and stability through long-term foster care placements. As demonstrated in Jill's ongoing work, it is through taking the best practice and understanding it, not just in terms of numbers, but in the quality of understanding, the bit where policy meets reality in people's lives. It is through this research that we are becoming better and wiser and more effective in providing the love and belonging that these children need.